You are now listening to the Life on Repeat podcast with Laura Valancourt, licensed mental health counselor, geriatric mental health specialist, and elder care coach. I'm so happy that you found us. Well, hello, everyone. It is my pleasure to introduce you to Teresa. And Teresa, can you tell me how do you say your last name? Quadras. Quadras. Teresa Quadras. There you go. Lovely. Well, Teresa is a licensed clinical social worker with a 25-year career in healthcare, mostly in palliative care and hospice, which is why I'm so excited to talk to her today. She currently works part-time as a palliative care social worker and has a part-time psychotherapy practice. And Teresa, I am just thrilled that you are here because I can't tell you how many questions I get from family members <laughs> about palliative care and hospice and what's the difference between the two and what are things to think about when they, you know, how do you know when it's time to advocate for those services? What can you expect from those services? All those questions. First, I would love to hear how, give us a little bit of history about yourself. How did you end up in that line of work, if you don't mind sharing? Sure. You know, I kind of fell into it. I was just very fortunate. I started out with a home health job and that kind of transitioned into hospice and that transition into palliative care. But I was so excited to kind of land there because way back in the 80s, a million years ago when I was in college, I took a class called The Social Psychology of Death and Dying. And it was so, so compelling to me. It was so fascinating how our culture deals with end of life issues or, and how we don't deal with it. How yeah, we don't deal with it. <laughs> I was like, I said that, yes. Yeah. And so I was really drawn to that line of work. And then it just kind of, played out that way that I got to spend most of my career talking with people who were facing serious illness or facing the end of their lives and being in that space with them and holding space for those conversations that don't really happen outside of that context very much. Because like you said, in our culture, it's, it's just not something that people are comfortable with. Isn't that amazing how, you know, that saying, the only guarantee in life is that you're going to die, right? Right, right. <laughs> such a part of, of life is death and that families almost need a professional to step in to sort of moderate or help have those conversations and mm-hmm. what an important role and I can imagine the families that you've touched over the years in that position so yeah do you mind before we jump in too deep I would love if you could give us kind of a um overview about the differences between palliative care and hospice? I get that question all the time. Yeah. uh, Yeah. I would love to, because it's so important that people understand these because there's a lot of misinformation and misconception of what they are. And I think people miss out on the services because of that. So hospice has a Medicare benefit. It's very specifically meant for when the prognosis is likely six months or less. And when a person is not pursuing life prolonging treatment, either because they choose not to or because there isn't any that's really going to help. 
people tend to come onto hospice very, very late. I think the average, this might just be in California, the average length of stay is about 17 days when they're eligible for six months of this service. It's um, nurses, social workers, chaplains, home health aides, a whole team that comes to support the patient and the family to focus on quality of life, managing symptoms, keeping people comfortable, avoiding hospitalization, trying to provide that support in the home or wherever the patient is. And so that's hospice. Palliative care. Can I ask it? I want to clarify a couple of things. You said so many good things and I want to just highlight. One of the things I heard you say is it's a Medicare benefit. Yes. It means that families do not have to pay for the service. Right. Okay. That's huge. I think sometimes people think that, you know, they can't afford it or. um, Yeah. So it's, it's a free service if they get the referral for it. And And then the other thing I heard you say is the hospice team will come to wherever the patient is. is. So if they're living at home, the hospice team will come to their home. If they're Mm -hmm. living in a memory care facility, Mm -hmm. many of our, many of our families have, have folks in memory care or assisted living or nursing homes. Um, so, so I'm understanding you correctly, right? The hospice yes. team will come wherever they are. That's right. Fantastic. There are some places, quick- oh, there are some places that have inpatient hospices that you can go to. Um, so that is also a thing where I am, that's not the norm. Um, yeah. But in some places that is also an option. I wish there were more. I know in my area in Washington state that it's I, I'm not aware of any in our state. There, there may be, but yeah, I, that, that's a whole nother topic we could talk about what, what inpatient hospice looks like and how yeah. they operate. You also mentioned the different team members that families can expect to come out to the home. And so I heard you say nurses, social workers, uh, the doctor, so there'll be a medical provider that's overseeing the medications. You mentioned spiritual care or, mm-hmm. or chaplain. Mm-hmm. Who else? A bath aid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you, and then volunteers, right? right. So what, right. what are some of the volunteers that might be available in certain communities that you might see? You know, it varies a lot because that's not something that's so well defined. So each hospice probably manages that a little differently. The primary role of the volunteers usually is to provide respite, to come sit with the patient, They don't do hands-on care, but they can come sit with the patient so that the caregiver can take a break, which we know is so important to get those breaks, you know, so that's their main role, but, and just social support, but other places might have other things. And I'm sure it depends on where you're at. Like you said, who, who's in the community. I have seen music therapists that will come music, live music, like guitar or a harp. And then I've also seen pet therapists come in mm-hmm. where they'll bring an animal in and, and do some, just some, I mean, what better medicine, right? Than yeah, <laughs> having yeah. a, an animal that they can stroke or pet or just be near, especially if they've got a history of being around animals. And so I just love, I just thank you. Thank you for that. Cause I, I wanted to highlight some of the unique services that, you think hospital is so medical model, right? Hospice. And in my experience, the hospice team is really skilled at meeting in a person's setting and they're coming into homes and they're in this sacred 
period of life. And, and so to appreciate that many of these professionals have that experience, they've walked that with someone. And so I think that just helps families feel a little better about inviting, you know, these professionals into their private homes. Yeah, sure. And, you know, it provides so much support for the patient and for the families. So that's what I love about it. Really, they're there for the whole family and working in your own environment to support this, the care and comfort and quality of life of, of the, the patient and the family as they're going through that. And, you know, it comes from the medical model in terms of, you know, there's a physician overseeing it, there's pharmacists, you know, they provide medications, there's certainly that aspect of it. But it's so outside of the medical model in that it really looks at the whole person, the whole family, focus on quality of life instead of treating symptoms, in treating illness. I mean, they do treat symptoms, but instead of, you know, the what we think of when we go to the doctor. So it's right. Like, At that, all costs, save right. someone's life. Yeah. Exactly. And, and that's a great cost for somebody that just wants a comfortable, peaceful move towards their ending. And um, oh. it allows people to not have to go to the hospital. You know, they have 20, this is something I didn't mention. They have 24 hour telephone availability. So if something comes up in the middle of the night, you don't have to go to through the phone tree, through your medical, whatever. You can call and talk to a hospice nurse and they can tell you what to do. And so it really avoids that like in the middle of the night panic. What do I do? I have to call 911 because I don't, I need help, you know, and people ending up in the hospital and people with dementia in the hospital, you know, that can be so distressing and so disorienting. And the chance, you know, the risk for delirium is higher, which exacerbates the Confusion. I mean, there's so many ways that just being able to manage the care at home or wherever the person is helps so much. It's tricky with dementia because that six month prognosis is a little harder to define, you know. And so that is in terms of like when to ask for it. A lot of people feel like they need hospice way before they're eligible when it comes to dementia. You know, you're thank you for bringing that up because that's the other thing I see a lot of is someone with dementia that's having a significant decline. And as a dementia specialist, you know, we can sort of project or have an idea of how long someone might, might live or not live. But I have seen over the last few years, it's much harder to get approved or qualified under the hospice benefit based on a dementia diagnosis. And that's been an area of hardship, I think, for a lot of families when they're trying to advocate for that service. And so do you, what are you seeing? Or, or can you speak to that? Like what, what tend to be the diagnoses that are getting that approval? Or um, yeah, get, talk to us a little bit about that area. You can qualify for hospice with a dementia diagnosis, but it has to be pretty advanced. Okay. So for example, if you wanted to look up something specific, there's a FAST score, F-A-S-T. You might be familiar with that. You can just Google FAST score. And I think you have to have a FAST score of 7C. So it looks like it, it looks at the functional level of the person. Okay. And you'll see like that's pretty far down the, the progression of the illness. And so generally, if people are mostly bedbound, mostly non-communicative, not smiling, really not engaging, sleeping most of the time, that's the point where hospice becomes appropriate. So those are the types of things they look at, not eating much, losing weight, all of those different kind of functional That's aspects. really helpful. I, I know our listeners are going to appreciate just knowing about the FAST score and being able to look at their loved ones and, and kind of get an idea of where they're at there. So yeah. thank you for 
The problem is that, you know, the, the time leading up to that can be really difficult to manage, you know, and medical situations might come up and people might have to go to the hospital. And if people want to focus on quality of life or, or comfort focused treatment and not go in for curative treatment and all that, it's really hard to manage that care at home when things come up. And so that's just a huge, it's just a huge gap in our care system. And it is just such a challenge. And I, you know, I think everybody recognizes that and there's no real easy answer. Palliative care can be helpful in, in those, those grayer areas. Those grayer areas. What, sticking with hospice, I want to, I have a couple more questions and then I'm really, really interested in, in palliative care. So two things, two questions that I have. Well, one is, can you speak to, I know that uh, many of the families that I've worked with, we've been able to get equipment that's been needed. Mm -hmm. And when I, when I say equipment, I'm talking about things like a hospital bed that can raise and lower, or, you know, many families have stairs. And so they, they're bringing their loved one home, but they can't get them upstairs or downstairs. So they'll, they'll set up a hospital bed in the living room or maybe oxygen or certain medications that are going to not prolong life, but help with their comfort symptoms mm-hmm. is really important. So is there, is there anything else to the, that equipment piece that would be important for families to know about there? Well, yeah, just that if hospice orders durable medical equipment for you, it should be covered as part of the benefit and medications that are, like you said, not life prolonging medications necessarily, but needed for comfort. And, you know, and if someone is on hospice and, you know, they fall and break their leg or something, they can still go to the hospital. I think that's something that people worry about is whether or not they're allowed to go to the hospital. You know, getting hospital treatment and getting hospice treatment, you can't do both because there is the same benefit. Like you have to, Medicare will pay for one or the other, basically. But if you decide there's something you need to go to the hospital for, you can sign off of hospice, you know, but it's meant for people who don't want to go back to the hospital if possible. And if there's something that can't be managed at home, hospice can arrange for you to go to the hospital under hospice, like if your symptoms can't be managed at home, for example. Yeah. Um, so there's some leeway with that, but they don't, they don't cover that 24 hour care usually. So that's something that families still need to be tending to. That's a good, I know. I'm glad that you brought that up because sometimes I have definitely had families over the years that have assumed that, Oh, I'm going to get hospice. So I don't need to pay for caregivers now. Right. And, and, and I take care of everything. It's not right. like that. Yeah. I'm thinking, so what that would look like then could, maybe you could describe sort of an average week, you know, who to expect in the home, what they're doing and how long they'd be there. Sure. And you know, again, it's going to vary. It depends a lot on the patient and family's needs. So it starts out, it has to be a referral from a physician. And then usually the first visit is done by a nurse, could be a social worker. And the first visit's pretty long because they do a, a thorough assessment of the needs and then there's some paperwork and, and all of that. And then the nurse case manager, usually the, the one who's kind of coordinating everything is the nurse. And that person will kind of assess the needs and set up a plan. They might come anywhere from once a week if the patient is pretty stable to once a day if, you know, if there are a lot of symptoms and things are changing quickly. And then they would stay for... I mean, I, I know all of this is relative to each person's yeah. situation, but maybe an hour or so? Or? Yeah. 
45 mm-hmm. minutes or an hour. I mean, it depends. I mean, some nurses are seeing six or eight patients in one day. So it depends on, you know, every hospice is going to have its own bandwidth, but they're there to address the medical needs, make sure the patient's comfortable, make sure the family knows how to manage the medications, you know, and, and it's longer than a doctor's appointment for sure, but they're not going to stay and, you know, do all the hands-on care all day long like that. They're there to make their assessment, do their skilled nursing piece of it and then move on. So it might be 20 minutes. It might be 45 minutes. If there's a lot going on, you know, they try to be pretty, pretty flexible. And then a social worker would come in and do a whole psychosocial assessment, ask a lot of questions. The first week on hospice is a little overwhelming because all these people are coming in and doing their assessments, but then it kind of settles down. And the social worker is there for emotional support, anticipatory grief counseling, um, helping with planning. And again, that's super flexible that the social worker will work with a family to develop a plan. And those plans change as the patients and the family's needs change. And then a home health aide who helps with bathing might come in a few times a week, two or three times a week, you know, so they're not there all the time, every time you need to get cleaned up, you know, but, you know, a few times a week to come in, make sure all the bathing is taken care of. And not every patient needs that, but that's available. And they might be there, you know, again for an hour, they might change the linens, make sure the patient's all clean and comfortable before they go. Volunteers are usually four hours. Even that, even I mean, those bath aids. What a relief for families, you know. Oh, that, yeah. that alone, and that's a little moment of respite for a family member. What a, a tender, I'm sure, experience for the patient as well to have that have someone taking their time. Uh, also, a professional that knows how to do bed baths or yeah, um, yeah. exactly, and. The home health aides and the nurses too can teach the family members how to manage those things more easily. And you're right about just the intimacy of it. I mean, a lot of times we would see our patients would talk with the home health aides and in ways that they weren't comfortable talking with anybody else just because they're there getting a bath, you know? So it is, it's a really, it's a huge, huge comfort and help to have that support. Great. I thank you so much for talking about, I mean, I, I think this, this is just a nice overview of what families can expect if they are uh, accepted onto hospice. And uh, so do you want to tell us a little about palliative care and that looks like, I think this is where, again, the area that most people have questions because it's not as commonly used. Mm -hmm. Is it, is it because it's newer? Do you think? Okay. Yeah. It is a relatively new medical specialty. And because it's new, it's practiced really different in different medical settings. Some places might not even offer palliative care services. To palliate means to comfort. And, you know, palliative medicine is is that more comfort-focused medicine. But as a service, it's like hospice in that it's a medical team. It might be provided in the clinic. Some of them do home visits. Some of them don't. It might be provided in the hospital. So... I've worked in inpatient and outpatient settings and done home visits. Um, So it just depends on how it's set up in your medical system, really. But it's meant to be a transdisciplinary team, just kind of like hospice. Usually with hospice, you'll have a nurse and then you'll have a social worker. In palliative care, they often work together. You might meet with the whole team at once, including a chaplain and or a nurse and or a social worker and or a physician. And their job is to assess and address distress 
which sounds funny when you say it out loud, <laughs> um, regarding a, any kind of serious illness. So a serious, likely life-limiting illness, really through any, any point of the disease process. You know, usually if someone gets a cancer diagnosis, for example, and they're getting treatment and they're likely to be cured, they're, they're not going to see palliative care. Um, so it's those situations where it's likely going to be life-limiting at some point but it's not specific to the last six months of life. It's not even necessarily specifically end of life treatment. So you can meet with this team and say, okay, this is where I am medically. This is what I understand. What should I be expecting going forward? What are the medical decision-making points? What are the treatment options? How do I balance those? And you have a whole team to support you through that decision-making, through looking at the big picture, through making sure, maybe you have a family meeting, making sure the whole family understands what's happening, where are we with this, this illness, what are the treatment options, what should we expect? And I think the most important thing, well, two important things, one is they're also focused on quality of life and comfort, and they can help manage symptoms. I, you made me think of something I, I wanna, sorry, I'm interjecting. When you're on palliative care, uh -huh. I, so I know with hospice, you assume the new the doctor that is under hospice. So you're kind of letting your primary care doctor go and you're working with a hospice doctor. Mm -hmm. How does palliative care work? Do you still have a primary care physician and they're working together or are you now under the care of the palliative care doctor? You know, I don't want to say necessarily one way or the other because I don't know how it plays out in different medical systems necessarily. Sure. Okay. My experience with it is that you keep your regular team. We don't replace any services that are already there. And so sometimes it's a one-time consultation. You know, uh -huh. you don't, you're not even on palliative care necessarily. You might just consult with the palliative care team. Okay. In some places they can follow you longitudinally and, and you would be on palliative care and they would, you know, follow up with you more long-term, but that's really not as common. It's just not, there's not funding for that in a lot of places. Um, so a lot of times it's just a consultation and they'll work with your primary team. Same thing in the hospital. You still have a primary team addressing your medical situation. The palliative care team would come in and consult. So it's in addition to the, your, your uh, current medical providers. Okay, that's yeah. helpful. Yeah, I thought something I wasn't very clear on. I've seen in the hospital setting, the palliative team, uh, uh, care team at work but not as much at home. So that's really helpful. Yeah. I mean, and sometimes it's just not offered at home. Sometimes it's they, only, they only have it in the hospital setting, you know, so it, it varies quite a bit. But I think that my biggest message is don't be afraid of it. <laughs> if somebody offers you a palliative care consultation, say yes. It's all added value. They don't take away anything. You know, people think it means stopping treatment and stopping all my meds. It's not that at all. It is, you can have active treatment and still have a palliative care consultation. So they're there to support you wherever you are in the disease process. And the most useful, most important piece of it, which is something that I, I can talk about in more depth if you want, is, is helping with the medical decision-making. Yes, please talk about, this is huge for, for yeah, caregivers. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. And, and so this whole team of professionals, and you might not meet with the whole team, you might just meet with one of them, you know, but they're trained to kind of talk, to facilitate the conversations of, okay, what's at stake medically? What, where am I in this? 
you know, what's the best case scenario? What's the worst case scenario? What's the most likely scenario? What if I opt for this treatment? What if I don't do that treatment? What is that going to look like? This is what's important to me. How do I, how do I take my goals and my priorities and, and my concept of quality of life and translate that into medical decisions? That's um, hard. That's so hard to do by yourself. You, you said that so beautifully. I, I want to go back and quote you. <laughs> what I hear you saying is that palliative care consultation or you know meeting with a team, whether it's once or multiple times, the goal is really to educate the family and the, the patient to review the pros and cons of all the decisions that are available. And also uh, what really stuck with me is recognizing that each individual person or family is going to have their own values, their own goals, their own, the things that are important to them as individuals. And so I just love what you said. And, and that is that this team is there to support families in recognizing what is important to them and, and understanding all the choices that are out there mm-hmm. in relation to those values and goals. Exactly. Yeah. And it does, again, step out of the medical model because, you know, you might spend an hour. I don't want to say that, I don't want to guarantee you're going to get an hour necessarily. But <laughs> working in palliative care, I've spent, you know, 90 minutes sometimes with a patient or a family and more than one time completely focused on the patient's quality of life and what's important to them and all the ways that the medical system can and cannot support that. And, and how do we, you know, how do we, how do we develop a care plan based on that? That's what it's for. Love it. Oh, this, that, thank you so much. I think this is going to be so helpful for people to understand that. I think from what we were just talking about, then thing that I think would be most useful to discuss is sort of just what does medical decision-making look like for people with dementia? Perfect. Let's go there. Yes. Um, That kind of flows from the palliative care piece of it, because this, again, this is so important. I'm so excited actually to have a chance to talk about this because with dementia, you know, when someone first gets dementia, you think about it in terms of memory loss, usually, right? You don't think about it as a medical situation, a medical diagnosis that's going to progress and need medical decision-making down the road. You know, it's more like, how do we deal with this forgetfulness and, and those things in the beginning? And so by the time medical decision-making comes up, you know, when there are medical complications, usually by then the patient no longer has capacity to make their own decisions, right? And then it falls on the family or whoever and, and who makes decisions at that point can be a really complicated question. And how they make decisions is another complicated question. So I think the two things that I would love to speak to for caregivers in, in that situation, one is to plan ahead as much as possible, you know, to not be afraid to talk about these things, because the more you talk about it, the more information you gather, the more you plan ahead, the easier it's going to be in the long run and the better you can honor the patient's wishes and it's hard to talk about these things, especially when someone first gets dementia. It's hard to talk about, you know, invasive medical treatment. It's just not, doesn't seem like it's part of the equation. So in terms of and planning, often families, often families are still individuals and mm-hmm. families are still reeling with exactly. that diagnosis and not understanding what that means. Some people aren't ready to accept and, and dive deep into 
understanding that. So I know there are some helpful tools out there that might be, can you speak to that? Yeah. Some, some sort of guidance, whether it's meeting individually with someone like yourself or going online and finding a resource or having something, you know, a printed document that can help walk them through that. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, it's just, it's kind of complicated. So I'll try to simplify it as much <laughs> as I can. It depends on where you are in the process. So if someone has just been diagnosed with dementia and maybe they just have some forgetfulness, they still have capacity to make some medical decisions. And if they haven't already, they should write an advanced healthcare directive. And that includes a durable power of attorney for healthcare, which legally appoints a decision maker for if and when that person can no longer make medical decisions. And that's so important. And it can also have the advanced directive piece, like the living will piece that talks about their wishes. There's a great one that's just that part, just talking about their wishes specifically for dementia. And it's at dementia-directive.org, I think. We'll look it up. I'll make sure I put it in the show notes. Yeah. Yes. And it's it's beautiful. It's And there are other ones too, but this mm-hmm. is the one that's specific to dementia. And it's not a legal document. It's just a way to document what your medical wishes would be in the context of dementia. So advanced directives, advanced healthcare directives is the first step, but somebody has to have capacity to execute that. If somebody has a trust, they've probably already done one and there's one in the trust. If not, you can get it online. You can just Google advanced directive. They're kind of different ones in different states, or you can go to your doctor or your healthcare providers and get one. Um, If you meet with palliative care, they'll look at all of this stuff with you. So that's one piece. Some medical settings have specific facilitators who can talk you through advanced care planning. I have a lot of information about it in my blogs on my website. It's another place you can start and a lot of links to resources. Great. So that's the first thing. If someone has capacity to make decisions, to designate an agent, to document their wishes, can do that in advanced directive. The other document that's important is a post form. Mm-hmm. And I think actually one of your other guests mentioned this. I remember hearing yeah, yeah we've talked show, about right? that. Yeah, yeah. Let me ask a question about that. I'm curious again because we're in our um, separate areas uh, all over the country. In your state, is a post form typically on a green piece of paper? Is it on a colored piece of paper? Do they pink? It's hot pink. Oh, it's pink. Okay, yeah. <laughs> it's lime green. Yeah. It must be the Seahawks. It must be the <laughs> green. <laughs> I don't know why I was just think then, but yeah. So funny, yeah. And then the other thing that I know about the pulsed forms, physicians' orders of life-sustaining treatment mm-hmm. is, and, and tell me if it's this way in California, mm-hmm. the first responders always know if they respond to a 911 call, they always look at the refrigerator to yep. see if it's there. So, okay, yep. same for California. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah, And that's really what it's meant for is to, to document how aggressive the person would want medical treatment to be in an emergency, right? And the thing to think about with this is that when you're talking about CPR, for example, it's people have really, really a, not appropriate education for what the reality of that is, I guess. Like the things we think about, what we see on TV, for example, is not what it's like. And so I really recommend talking to, like if the patient themselves, or even for the patient, talking to the doctors and saying, you know, what should we expect from the course of this illness? What are the medical decision points that are going to come up for us? You know, what are the complications we might anticipate? 
Because when you think about dementia, you don't think about the medical things that can come up. So educate yourself about that. And then talk to your doctors. Well, if my heart stopped and I stopped breathing, what would the likely outcome of CPR be for me? <laughs> you know, and that it's different depending on where you are in your life, but it's not usually very successful. And if it is, people usually end up on life support with brain damage and you know, getting CPR doesn't normally take you back to the quality of life that you have now, you know. And so that's just one of the pieces of the pulse. It's the most important part is the CPR question. But they often have other questions like, would you want to be on a ventilator, antibiotics? Do you want to go back to the hospital? You know, other questions like that. Artificial nutrition. Yep. Yeah. Yes. Which is a big one for dementia. That's the whole that's a whole other talk right there. <laughs> There's so much to that. So I think the question is, you know, what's the quality of life like now? Any medical decision. What's the quality of life like now? What is the medical intervention that we're talking about? What does that entail? And what's the quality of life likely to be like afterwards? Right? Those are the three things to look at. That's so helpful. I, I really love the way that you just broke that up for people to be thinking about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, it's so hard because... In a medical emergency, you know, people will say, you'll get to the emergency room and they'll say, do you want us to do everything? And you're like, um, yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, not a lot of conversation really around that. Yeah. yeah. So it takes a lot of education and conversation in advance to really be prepared for that kind of decision making. You know, you're bringing up such a good point. And that is, you know, most people like to think that they're planning in advance and they're prepared for anything that might come their way. And, and we know, you know, as human beings living life that you can be often as prepared as you can be and something else may come up and hit you. However, everything that you spoke to across the board, whether that's getting your power of attorney document in place or having the conversation about someone's wishes, those things when we're talking about end of life and when we're talking about dementia, they're inevitable that you will need those things. And yeah. so I love that we're having this conversation. Yeah, it's so important and it's so it's such a neglected topic. So I'm really glad we're having this conversation too. I get very excited about talking to people. <laughs> you know, it's a hard thing to discuss, but it's just, it's, I mean, I've just seen what happens when people plan and when they educate, when they think about it and talk about it and when they don't. And it's a, it's a vast difference in how things go. And I guess, can I just say one more thing about decision-making in the context of dementia that I think is so important? This is something I use in palliative care all the time. It's so hard as a family member to make a decision for somebody else. It's so hard. And we're so invested in all the work we've done to get them as far as they are and wanting them to be around and, and all of these things. And so actually making decisions about medical treatment is just fraught with just these layers of complications and emotions and our own investment in it. And what I find to be most helpful is think about the person before they had dementia. Think about who they were and what was important to them. And imagine that person, if that person could be in the room right now, looking at the medical situation, looking at themselves in the hospital bed or wherever they are, right? If that person from 10 years ago, whenever, could be part of this conversation, what would they be hoping for? What would they be afraid of? What would be most important to them? And that really, really, really helps because then you're really just speaking for them. 
you're not making a decision on their behalf. You're really, it's like you're channeling them. Yes. Yes. That, and, and that uh, I can see that that can take some of the, oh, I don't want to say burden, but stress off of Mm -hmm. the decision being yours as, as the decision maker and kind of trusting that. I love what you said, you know, the idea of kind of channeling that person's past self and, and, um, the decisions that they would have made if they had, were able to do that or able to see the situation they were in now. Can you talk a little bit about supporting the, the caregiver? You know, the, the mm-hmm. talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. Yeah. What are the suggestions, yeah, that you might have for self-care or um, paying attention to what the caregiver is actually going through during this period of time. Yeah. You know, I think, I mean, there's so many, there's, there's many <laughs> yes. to it could be on for hours. <laughs> I know. It's true. I think the one thing that most comes to mind, and this is in these situations and in general, when I worked in hospice, I worked in hospice for 12 years. And the saddest part of working in the hospice is not people dying because we all die and we know our patients on hospice are going to die. And it's, it's sad, but, and it's hard on the families. The, the saddest part was watching what they did with their time. And so in a dementia case, it's more the caregiver that I would be speaking to than the patient. But I'm thinking about my patient's experience. You know, when a, a patient is saying, this can't be happening to me. This isn't the way things are supposed to go. I don't want to be in this situation. And caregivers might do the same thing. I've seen so many, and actually, yeah, caregivers really go through that process too. I don't want this to be happening, right? So much of their energy is spent on wishing it wasn't happening and kind of railing against the reality of it. And when people are so focused on, wait, this is not how it's supposed to go. This is not the way we planned it. This is not what I want to be dealing with right now. And so much of the energy is focused on that there's so much opportunity that's missed, right? Because in these, you know, I talked about my career, I've spent a lot of time talking with people at the end of life. There's so much beauty in those conversations. There's so much opportunity for connection and and grace and wisdom and resolution, all kinds of stuff. But when you're just fighting the reality of the situation, you just miss those opportunities, you know? And not just at end of life, I mean, in general. In caregiving, in general, I think there are tons of opportunities for connection and satisfaction and laughter and, you know, all of those things. And so I think what I've been thinking about lately is this idea of radical acceptance. And I think this is a really neat, a really neat notion for caregivers to consider. Like, what if I just, I just radically accept this is my life right now. This, yes, my loved one has dementia. Yes, I can't do what I want to do because I'm caregiving. It's not what I would have chosen, but here I am. I'm just going to accept that this is this is the situation. And it just shifts so much, mm-hmm. so much of your experience. There are so many things that we don't have control over in these situations. You don't have control over the progression of dementia. There are things you can do to, you know, help a little bit here or there maybe, but kind of out of our control. So what is under your control? And really where we put our attention, what we focus on, what we engage with, how, what mindset we bring to the situation. 
you know, where we look for opportunities for growth, you know, those are the things that we have control over. So where attention goes, energy flows. Right. Right. It's a practice to kind of shift your focus that way. Yeah. Yeah. And the same thing, you know, if you're making medical decisions, you can spend a lot of time saying, well, gosh, I wish this person didn't have pneumonia and I didn't have to make this decision. Right. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't help you make the decision. Right. So I think that goes with decision-making, you have to be really realistic and accept this is where we are right now. And these are the possible outcomes either way. And that's the only way you can make a good decision for somebody is by really allowing yourself to be in that space. Mm. I imagine that you have witnessed, you know, over the years that you've been doing this work, so many uh, situations and experiences where people really wrestle with that acceptance. And uh, yeah, this is kind of a trick question because I know it's <laughs> unique, but I, you know, I want to ask it anyway. And that is, have you seen, I don't know if you can even answer it, but what would you say might be the most helpful for a caregiver that is really struggling with, with that acceptance that just, you know, maybe cognitively, you know, consciously they know They may know, I just need to be okay with this. I just need to accept this and move on. But there's something inside that is just resistant to that. What would you say to somebody that is going through that? Mm. Boy, it's so, there's so many layers to that. A couple things. One, it's okay to see a therapist. (laughs) You know, I mean, this is really, really hard. This is really hard. And so, you know, actually talking to a therapist or a counselor might be able to help kind of, you know, work through those layers. So that's one piece of it. Hospice and palliative care support both are really great at supporting people through those. So I think asking for help with okay. it is, is yeah. one piece of it. This is a, it's a lot for one person to reckon with. Yeah, I hear you saying too that creating the space to, because mm-hmm. I, I, what I see sometimes is not, not all the time by any means, but sometimes people busy themselves, mm-hmm. uh, their minds and their bodies with caregiving tasks. And then it almost turns into kind of a protective mechanism of not having to look at those things, right? Yes. Having yes. to explore yes. that. Yes, right. And well, so, see that yeah. A lot. Yeah. And, you know, that's one way of coping, right? And some people right. need to cope that way. And that that's okay if that's what gets you through. And there's this whole other level of coping, shall we say, that you're missing if, if you're focused just on the tasks. And there are so many tasks. It's so hard not to be focused on the tasks. Right. Yeah, that's kind of a luxury sometimes to be yeah. able to not have to, to deal with the day-to-day. I think, like you said, is the key to it. I can give you one kind of format that I use if, if that would be helpful. I don't want to take too much time. So I'll just go through it quickly. And it's on my website too. You can. Yeah, I'm definitely going to, I will definitely list your website in the show okay. notes so that people can find that. I teach a class called living with intention and I developed this model in the context of that class. <laughs> and, and I think that this could be really useful for what you are asking about. And it's called, I call it the ARC model. It's just the acronym, A-R-C. I'm calling it right now the ARC model 
of equanimity. Because <laughs> that just kind of seems to sum it up. But the arc is, the A for arc is awareness and attention. And I'll go through this in a little bit more detail. The R is a reframe. And the C is a compassionate choice. A realistic reframe, I should say, and a compassionate choice. So first, awareness and attention, just taking that, you know, creating that space, like giving yourself your own attention, just look inward, even for a moment, you can practice this in just a few moments, but just stop and pay attention. Okay, what's going through my mind? Where do I feel it in my body? What's, what's that bringing up? You know, what needs my attention right now? What's coming into my awareness? Just give yourself that space. And once you kind of shift into that caring observer mode, just by paying attention, things start to settle just a little bit because you're not in it. You're kind of observing it. So attention and awareness. And then the reframe is a release and replace. So release any comparison or judgment. So comparison, like this is not the way my life was supposed to be, you know, comparing what's happening to the way you expected it to happen or judgment. This is too hard for me or I'm not doing enough as a caregiver, whatever that judgment is, just see if you can just let it go even for a minute and replace it with acceptance and curiosity. Okay. I may not love this, but this is where I am. Okay. Let me be curious about it. Hmm. What are the opportunities in this moment? What are the, what are the growth edges? What are the, what are the resources I have that I need to bring to bear to this? Whatever. Just be curious about what the situation has to offer. And from there, you can move into a compassionate choice, whatever that might be, and move forward. And that sounds like a lot. You can do that in 10, 30, 30 seconds. That, that is so beautiful. I cannot believe how much you just summed up with, with <laughs> I I feel like we need a whole nother show that we can, <laughs> you can walk us through. I definitely encourage our listeners to go check out your website. And so is there a, a place on your website that, is it a clear link that they can learn more about your living with intention class and the ARC model information? Sure. Yeah. So my website is www.teresaquadras.com. Just my name, T-E-R-E-S-A-Q-U-A-D-R-E-S. Sorry, I said that really fast, but we're running out of time. So. I'll put it, yep, I'll put it in the notes. <laughs> and so if you just scroll down, you, there's things, you know, just about my practice on there, about caregiving. The bottom of that is the living with intention class. And then there's a blog page. Connecticut, okay. the blog page that has it has stuff about caregiving it has stuff about advanced care planning and it has stuff about the arc model and more to come this is a beautiful gift i mean really i want to thank you because you're sharing this freely and this is information that can absolutely be life-changing i mean it it like you said it sounds so simple and and you can do it in a moment these are where the shifts are, right? This yeah. is where when we talk about reframing, I mean, that is, those are these magical moments that can be life-changing in, mm-hmm. in just a split second. Mm-hmm. Um, so thank you really for sharing that. You're welcome. My pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah. Is there anything else that we haven't touched on that you think would be really important for listeners to know about or that you want to share? You know, there's just one other thing that comes to mind, and I'll just cover it briefly because I, I can't even remember where I found this. I did not make this up, but I remember reading somewhere that the four elements that make caregivers most successful, mm-hmm. successful in providing great care and also managing 
for themselves getting through it. Our mastery, so like a feeling of competence, really learning about what you're doing and a sense of mastery. Coping strategies, like how do you cope just right in the moment, like using the ARC model, for example, things like that. Social support and stress reduction. So just, I'm just going to put that out there that, you know, that's something that we can stop and think about, oh, okay, well, how am I doing with each of those? Is there one of those that I need to develop more? Mastery, coping strategies, social support, and stress reduction. Right. And if anyone runs across that article, <laughs> you know, because I don't, I don't know what the source is. I would love to sure. attribute that to somebody, but I'm going to pass it on anyway, because I think it's useful. Fantastic. Oh, Teresa, thank you so much. I mean, this was a fantastic you are a fantastic source of information and just so grateful that you joined us today to share this information with our, our listeners. Yeah, you're so welcome. It was my pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this episode. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute, nor is it meant to convey professional, legal, psychological, financial, or medical advice. If you can use such services, please seek them out from someone you trust.